Chapter Twenty Five of the Barnabys in America by Francis Milton Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five. The whole Allen Barnaby party set off with their new friend for Big Gang Bank, the seat of Colonel Beauchamp. Their reception, a young lady's boudoir. All preliminaries being thus far settled, Mrs. Allen Barnaby very gracefully gave Mrs. Colonel Beauchamp to understand that her anxiety to find herself at Big Gang Bank would admit of no further delay, her notes having, in fact, exactly reached the point at which the sight of that magnificent piece of social machinery, an actively organized slave plantation, as Judge Johnson had elegantly described it in Congress, was become absolutely necessary. This was quite enough to set the active mind and body of Mrs. Beauchamp into such a state of excitement as very speedily brought all preparations depending on her to a conclusion, and even the soporific colonel himself was sufficiently awakened by the intelligence to make him, on hearing it, pronounce in a very decided tone, "'My dear, the sooner we set off, the better.' But the most remarkable phenomenon produced by these new arrangements was the manner in which they were received by Annie for though disappointed in her hopes of an expedition up the Mississippi, and doomed, moreover, to endure at her own home the presence of the whole Barnaby plus Tornarino party in the oppressive character of guests, it did not appear to vex her at all. It was indeed quite astonishing to see how well she bore it. The business of departure, therefore, was both rapidly and smoothly brought to a conclusion. Mrs. Carmichael wheezed forth her hopes of seeing them all again, and Patty's elegant and pious friend, Mrs. General Gregory, declared that nothing should prevent her forthwith repairing to their plantation mansion, in order to receive the whole party on their leaving Big Gang Bank. The journey produced no events particularly interesting, which might partly be owing to the lassitude produced by the heat of the weather, for though it was certainly a great relief to quit the glare of New Orleans for scenes in which they had trees instead of houses to look at, the exertion of travelling equalized the matter, and the Europeans of the party had little energy for anything beyond fanning themselves and sipping iced lemonade from stage to stage as they proceeded. At length, however, this unavoidable martyrdom was over, the melting journey at an end, and all the luxuries of a rich planter's establishment around them. In point of picturesque beauty, Big Gang Bank had little to boast of, being a wide-spreading brick edifice situated in a large square enclosure of coarse, ill-kept grass, surrounded by a zigzag fence and with nothing in sight but a considerable expanse of flat country covered with sugar canes, cotton bushes, and rice grounds, diversified at intervals by clusters of negro huts. The mansion itself consisted of a lofty center and two low wings, the former surmounted by a sort of pointed pediment in the middle of which yawned a huge round aperture containing the enormous dinner-bell. The wings, which had no second story, displayed a row of at least a dozen windows in each, and not only along this lengthy front, but round the whole building ran a deep portico, which, being lined with orange trees and pomegranates, redeemed it in some degree from the scorched-up aspect produced by the ill-complexioned material of the building and the defective verdure of the lawn which surrounded it. But it was not on the expanse of her mansion or on the beauty of the flowering shrubs which adorned it that Mrs. Beauchamp chiefly prided herself, though well aware that it was all very first-rate elegant. But her eyes sparkled as the carriages containing her numerous guests drove up to the portico, and she perceived the center door that was thrown open to receive them crowded with gaily clad negroes. About a dozen of these male and female ran forward as the equipages approached, ready to perform all offices, necessary and unnecessary, that might be required of them. Their light summer garb, more picturesque than abundant, was for the most part white, 
perfectly clean, and set off to great advantage by the mixture of bright-colored calico introduced into their girdles and turban-like headgear. "'You did not look, I expect, for such an elegant gang of domestic niggers in any private gentleman's dwelling, did you, my dear lady?' said the smiling Mrs. Beauchamp, addressing her most important guest. "'But these are not the one half of the household gang, and not any single one of them have any more to do with the canes or the cotton or the rice than you have.' "'It is indeed a most splendid establishment,' replied Mrs. Allen Barnaby, raising her hand as in admiration. "'It is a great loss as to labor in course,' resumed Mrs. Beauchamp. "'But my colonel is a very liberal, high-minded gentleman, "'and chooses that his wife and his daughter "'should live in all luxury according as they have a right to do. "'Doubtless, dear lady,' she continued with a pitying shake of the head, "'you have heard and read enough about the want of helps "'among the American ladies. "'And it serves them right, too, there is no denying it, "'for thinking of such a thing as turning a free-born American "'into a drudge to come and go at anybody's bidding.' True it is, no doubt of it, and very fitting, too, that they should want helps. But now, Mrs. Allen Barnaby, ma'am, I flatter myself you will have an opportunity of making your own observations, and finding out for yourself the alone reason why so many of the finest ladies in the world are often forced to do their own dirty work, and will be able to do justice to the real gentility of those who know better what is due to themselves. "'Walk in, dear ladies, walk in, and pray remember that you may all of you just ring and call as much as you like. Indeed, you'll only have to clap your hands, ladies, in order to bring as many domestic blacks about you as you can want or wish for. Pray make no scruples, and don't fear that you are taking them from outdoor work, for they are never sent into the grounds from year's end to year's ends except just for punishment, and then they get their flogging in the fields, which is a deal better, you know, than having it to do in the house. This speech, which was begun as they left the carriage, lasted the whole length of an enormous hall which traversed the building from front to back, affording by its perfect shade and the current of air which passed through it a very agreeable contrast to the heat which the travellers had been enduring. "'Oh, goodness, what a delightful place!' exclaimed Madame Tornarino. "'I hope, ma'am, you mean to sit down here a little.' "'This is beautiful, to be sure!' chimed in the greatly comforted Matilda, beginning to fan herself anew with refreshed strength and violence. "'Beautiful,' repeated Mrs. Allen Barnaby, in an accent that seemed to scorn the insufficient epithet. "'It is noble. It is magnificent.' Mrs. Beauchamp, with patriotic and domestic pride, both busy at her heart, looked round upon the admiring guests as if she could have kissed them all. "'Oh, my!' she gaily exclaimed. "'You mustn't talk about this being beautiful.' It is just large and lofty and fresh, that's all. But you, my dear Mrs. Allen Barnaby, have taught your own clear-sighted way of seeing everything to your whole party, and I'm sure it's a glory and a pleasure to show you anything. But now, please to walk in here, ladies. This is what we call number one, because it is our littlest drawing-room. But that's the proper way to begin, you know. We ought always to begin with the beginning, and so I always bring new visitors in here first. Now do please to sit down, all of you, and refresh yourselves. Major Allen Barnaby and Monsieur must be so kind, I expect, to excuse Pa's stealing off so. It has always been his way, gentlemen, and we mustn't look for his changing it now. 
If it's twenty times in a year that he goes from home, the first thing he does upon coming back to it is to go into a little dark room of his own picking and choosing, and then he lights a cigar and gets a nigger or two to bring him a mint julep with a nice bit of ice in it. And then, gentlemen, he sends off for his confidential looker, who presently puts him up to everything that has happened on the estate since he went. And I don't believe he'd lay down in his bed till he had heard all this, if it was ever so. The major and his son-in-law hastened to assure their amiable hostess that they should be immeasurably sorry if their being at Big Gang Bank should in any degree interfere with the habits of Colonel Beauchamp, all of which having been said with the most perfect politeness on all sides, the whole party sat down on the various couches and sofas that seemed to invite them, and then Mrs. Colonel Beauchamp clapped her hands. Upon this, two handsome negro girls made their appearance side by side at the door, and with a movement so similar and simultaneous that they rather looked like one piece of machinery than two self-moving human beings. Sangaree, whiskey, melons, ice, and cakes, said Mrs. Beauchamp, in a voice of authority that sounded a little like a word of command given on parade, and ere the eye could wink, the two figures became invisible. And this is the country, exclaimed Mrs. Allen Barnaby with emotion, which the audacity of English travellers has dared to libel as inferior to their own. I blush to think that I am an Englishwoman. Never mind that, dearest Mrs. Allen Barnaby replied her amiable hostess, in a tone of the most friendly spirit of consolation. That is a sort of misfortune, you know, that nobody can help, let them wish it ever so much. But this I will say, that if ever a lady deserved to be a free-born American female, it is you yourself. Dear kind Mrs. Beauchamp, returned the travelling lady, how sweet it is to hear you say so. I would not exchange such praise as those words contain for the richest diadem that ever encircled the tyrannical head of a European monarch. Mrs. Allen Barnaby, uttering these words, appeared to be overpowered by her feelings, and drew forth her pocket-handkerchief to catch the drops that emotion forced to flow. Fortunately, the black automatons reappeared at this moment, each bearing a tray, the twin of which was in the hands of the other. Those who have never partaken of ice sangaree when the thermometer stands at a hundred cannot be trusted to calculate its power of soothing the spirits. Mrs. Allen Barnaby tasted and was revived, drank freely, for it is a mixture that, like copper's tea, cheers but not inebriates, and was herself again, gay, animated, inspired, and eloquent. Well, now, said Mrs. Beauchamp, looking cheerfully round her, I do think we shall be as pleasant a party as ever was got together. I wonder what has become of the young English gentleman, Mr. Egerton. I heard him say positively that he would be here to-day, and unless he has right down lost himself some way or another, I expect he ought to be here by this time, for I calculate he must have come to the same point by steam as we did, only setting off by the next turn. What's that, Annie? she continued, looking out of the window as conveniently as she could without approaching it. Is not that a gentleman on horseback? I don't know, Mamma," said the young lady, suddenly passing through a pair of folding doors into an inner room. I grieve that she should so have said, because next to Mrs. Allen Barnaby herself, Annie Beauchamp is the heroine of the present narrative, and as the words thus uttered were not true, I feel compelled to acknowledge that she does not altogether deserve the dignified position in which my partiality has induced me to place her. 
Annie Beauchamp said that she did not know whether the approaching figure were that of a gentleman on horseback, whereas she did know perfectly well, not only that it was a gentleman on horseback, but that, moreover, the gentleman was Frederick Egerton. Whatever might have been the motive for such falsification, it was of course indefensible, and I must leave her to the mercy of those to whom I have been compelled by my love of historic truth to make this disclosure. A few minutes more, and the fact became evident to all, and Mrs. Beauchamp prepared herself again to do the honors of her mansion, her sangaree, and her slaves, in such a manner as to elevate her country in the eyes of another European, to the highest pitch that it was possible for her to reach. The young man paid his compliments to the circle assembled with his usual graceful ease, although it did not appear to consist exactly of the party he expected to find there. Perhaps he was disappointed because Colonel Beauchamp was not himself present to welcome him. Neither the colonel nor his daughter, however, made their appearance till the hour of dinner, the former being engaged exactly in the manner his lady had described, and the latter choosing for some reason or other to pass the interval in her own room. It was really a pretty room that allotted to the heiress of Big Gang Bank, for it was decorated according to her own fancy. It was on the ground floor, at the northeast corner of one of the wings, and opened by two large French windows upon a very small but bright and fragrant flower garden, enclosed for and kept sacred to her own especial use and benefit. And here all Annie's private hours were passed, and all her private studies carried on and considering that she did not deal in necromancy or any other branch of the art usually denominated black a very remarkable degree of mystery attended the prosecution of these studies annie beauchamp had for the last year of her life been very busily engaged in educating herself having with a good deal of acuteness discovered that during the time others had been engaged in teaching her she had learnt nothing but in order to perform this double part of tutor and pupil it was absolutely necessary that she should not be watched for as everybody excepting herself considered her education not only completed, but completed on the most liberal and extended scale, her own exertions would have been treated as a work of supererogation, which it would be quite as well to leave alone. Moreover, this self-education was carried on in a style that would indisputably have brought upon her as many reproofs for neglecting her studies in one line, as for prosecuting them unnecessarily in another. Annie had caused her adoring parents a vast number of quarters in all the most approved branches of American female accomplishments, to no single one of which she had devoted an hour since she left college. Algebra and mathematics she wholly neglected. Her plain trigonometry she tore into fragments and made her own little slave Nina sweep it all away. Astronomy fared not much better, and all the elements of all the ologies were crammed into a basket together and carried off in company with the trigonometry. From both music and painting, which had of course been quartered upon her as long as she remained in other hands than her own, she also turned resolutely away, not in distaste, but in despair. In short, Annie Beauchamp did nothing but read, and that she did with an avidity and perseverance for which nothing but her unlimited credit with a New York bookseller could have supplied materials. To the scene of all this quiet study, the eccentric little girl now repaired. But instead of taking a book, she placed herself at the greatest possible distance from her reading corner, and seating herself in a low chair, with her fairy feet upon a somewhat high footstool, her crossed arms resting on her lap, and her absent eyes fixed upon the floor, she would have made as pretty a study for the attitude commonly described by the words nose and knees as ever was seen. Ere she had indulged many minutes in this half-sulky, half-happy position, which at that moment was particularly well suited to her state of mind, her enjoyment of it was disturbed by the entrance of Nina. 
This Nina was a negro girl exactly of her own age, who had been commanded to play with her in infancy, and elected to the especial honor of being the young Harris's personal attendant from the time of her return from school. She was not suffered, however, to leave the plantation when her young mistress went from home, because, as the confidential manager of the household gang informed his master, she was so darnation cute that she'd be sure to bring home mischief if she did. The black and white girls, therefore, had been separated for two months, and despite the tremendous interval between the heiress and the slave, the pleasure of meeting was mutual, though perhaps not quite equal in degree. Annie had many things to think about. Nina had but one, and that one was her young mistress. The black girl entered through the open window with the light spring of an antelope, and dropping upon her knees before Annie's footstool, seized first upon one delicate hand, and then upon the other, to kiss and fondle them, while she exclaimed in English, as pure as that spoken by her well-read young mistress, It is like shade in the midst of the rice-ground. What is like shade, Nina? said Annie, smiling kindly on her. The girl sighed deeply and did not answer. What is like shade, Nina? repeated her mistress. The sight of something very dear and long unseen, replied the girl. But it is not like the shade of the free forest, she continued, looking up to the face of Annie with an expression of great suffering. What is the matter with you, Nina? said the young lady, looking with much surprise at the troubled countenance of her pretty slave. Do you mean to say that you want me to give you your freedom? My freedom? Do you think, Miss Annie, that it is possible I could ever wish to be free whilst I belong to you? Oh, do not think it. Such a wish never crossed my mind for a single instant since I have been old enough to know what wishing meant. Then what do you mean, my dear girl? And what does that tear mean, Nina? Why do you look upon me so very sadly? I never saw you in this humor before, said Annie, looking earnestly at the dark face that rested on her knees. How should I be able to tell you, replied the girl evasively. Even you, Miss Annie, sometimes seem hardly to know what is passing in your own mind. And do you wonder that with all my ignorance I should not know more than you do? What have you been reading, Nina, since I went away? demanded Annie, looking grave. I think you have been wasting your time with some of those foolish novels. Foolish for you, they certainly are, for they cannot by possibility convey to you a single useful idea. I have not. But never mind now, dearest Miss Annie, about my reading. It matters little what a negro girl reads, so that she leave not her work undone. But why do you look so sad, Nina? You have not told me that, you know, said her young mistress, looking curiously in the large eyes that had not yet been able to wink away their superfluous moisture. Why are your eyes full of tears, my poor girl? Why, the truth is, Miss Annie, said the young slave, I am sorry you are come home, though I love to see you. I was so glad when I heard you were going to be very happy and to travel about, and that is the reason, you know, why I may be sorry you are come home again so soon. I should scarcely have thought you would have cried about it either, said Annie, looking puzzled for a moment. But you were always an odd girl, Nina, though a good one too, as times go. But there, go now, I can't talk to you any longer, for I am thinking of something else. You may go into my bedroom, Nina, and unpack all my things, and bring all the books you find into this room. There, go. At first hearing the word go, the girl had sprung upon her feet, but even after hearing it a second time, she still lingered. I will go, she said, but without moving. 
"'What ails you, Nina?' said Annie, laughing. "'I think you are bewitched. "'Why do you not go where I bid you? "'What a spoilt girl you are, Nina. "'Tell me now, naughty Blackie, "'ought I not to send you to the rice-ground?' "'If you did, Miss Annie,' she replied, shaking her head, "'perhaps I should go more quickly.' She now moved a step or two towards the door, but before she reached it turned round and said, "'Will you not go, Miss Annie, and pay a visit to the good lady at Portico Lodge?' "'To be sure I shall go and pay a visit to the good lady at Portico Lodge,' replied Annie. "'Did you ever know me neglect my kind old friend? "'But you do not want me to go this very minute, Nina, do you?' Again the young slave stood silent for a while before she answered and looked irresolute and embarrassed, as if she had something on her mind that she wished to express, but for some reason or other did not choose to utter it. "'What are you dreaming about, Nina?' said Annie, laughing. "'I do believe, girl, that you are in love.' Nina shook her head, sighing, however at the same time so very deeply that her mistress laughed again, saying, "'Nay, then, it is so, is it, my pretty blackie?' "'Well, Nina, I hope the beloved loves again, and there is no great doubt of that, seeing that you are acknowledged on all hands, you know, to be the beauty of the whole plantation. But he must be a very nice fellow, Nina, or I shall not give my consent.' "'Oh, ma, Miss Annie,' returned the girl, tears again starting in her eyes, "'I wish you would not talk so idly. "'Go and see good Madam Whitlaw as soon as ever you can. "'She is a kind lady, and she loves you dearly, Miss Annie. "'And besides, she knows everything and everybody, "'and will be likely, if anyone can, to—' "'Here Nina suddenly stopped short, rapidly turning her eyes away, "'as if to avoid meeting those of her mistress, which were fixed upon her. "'If you are not in love, Nina, you are most certainly gone or going out of your wits,' "'said Miss Beauchamp, waving her off. "'And if you don't go away directly, it is very likely that I shall lose mine, "'for all you do say is as unintelligible as all you do not say. "'Besides, Nina, I tell you I am thinking of something else.' Once again the black girl heaved a very heavy sigh, and then retreated, leaving her mistress less disposed to meditate upon her mystery and her melancholy than she probably would have been had she not been, as she said, thinking of something else. End of chapter 25